case you don't know me, my name is uh, Kirby, Pastor Kirby. Me and wife Jennifer are the youth pastors here at Victory. Uh, I'm so thankful, Pastor Ben, uh, for letting me uh, speak this morning, close out our Summer at Victory series. How many of y'all been liking Summer at Victory? It's been an awesome series, am I right? Pastor Ben's brought some, um, yeah, that's right. He's brought some amazing messages. I'm going to close it out today with, uh, hopefully it's something that's going to be, get your brain going. Hopefully uh, we can laugh a little bit, have a good time. But uh, I want to talk about something that's very important to me. Uh, I, I believe it's one of the, our defining characteristics as a, as a church, as a family of believers who follow after God. And that is uh, one of our defining characteristics of who we are is that we've got a passion for the word of God. Can I get an amen? We've got a passion for the word of God. We believe that the word of God is perfect, that it is his word, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We believe what Hebrews 4.12 says, which is that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. It means it came straight from the mouth of God and it is useful to your life. Look at somebody next to you say, all scripture. Oh, you got to get that emphasis. Say, all scripture. <laughs> all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so what I want to talk to you guys about today is, is do we really believe that? All scripture. What about the scripture that when you read it, you're like, that doesn't seem useful. I'm getting some laughing for some people who read Leviticus this morning, okay? What about the scriptures that you read and you look at it and you're like, that's not useful. That's confusing. That's not useful. Maybe even worse, you read that scripture, that's offensive. That hurts me. I don't think God would ever say that. I never pictured God saying something like that. I never pictured God doing something like that. Difficult scriptures. And I joke about Leviticus, okay? I joke about it because I believe all of us in here who read God's word, who are Christians, we kind of... We have a tendency to treat Leviticus like the weird neighbor's house. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. Nobody tells you don't go there. You just kind of avoid it, right? That's what I mean by the weird neighbor's house. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the weird neighbor's house, everybody. I'm going to preach about Leviticus this morning. And some of you guys, I, 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 get, I think the Christians, we got some, some laughs about it. But if you're new to church or you're new to this whole faith thing, you're like, okay, if it's a part of your Bible, then why would you avoid it? Let's go to the first verse of Leviticus here. Here we go. Verses like this is why it's a little confusing. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Y'all hear that, you homesteaders? Okay. All right. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. 100% cotton or you're a sinner. Okay, here we go. Next verse. What's our next one? Leviticus 19:27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. No shave November, all year round, okay? You got a haircut. Uh-oh, look out. Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Everybody's, yeah, that's good, respect the elderly. But I see some gray heads in here and I see a lot of sitting bottoms. Okay, what's the next one? What do we got? Anything, and this is our key verse for today, everybody, our key verse. Anything living in the water, Louisiana people, that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. 
And just to kind of give everybody a little bit of breakdown what that means, living in the water, no fins or scales, that's shellfish, everybody. Shrimp, lobsters, oysters, and everybody say it with me, crawfish, unclean by you. So our message to close out Summer at Victory is, can a Christian eat crawfish? Or, how to wrestle with difficult scriptures. Look at somebody next to you say, that's difficult. Especially in Louisiana. That's di- and I love how Mr. Wally got us a picture of the actual boiled crawfish. Where it looks tasty. You don't want the picture of them down in the mud, okay? We want the ones that are like, oh, I want to eat it. Can I eat it? I want to know. Can I eat it? So what do we do with Leviticus? What do we do with difficult scriptures that we read, and instead of it seeming useful, it just seems confusing or it seems offensive to our Louisiana hearts and stomachs, okay? What do we do with difficult... It's a lighthearted title, but I think it's got some serious implications. Because the truth is, do we really believe that Hebrews 4.12 says all scripture is God-breathed and useful, or do we just hop right over Leviticus? I'm, I'm bringing this up because, to me, this was actually a sticking point of faith. Of what do I do with all these old laws? Why are they there? Do I have to follow? The, do I need to cancel all my crawfish boils? Like, what, is, what do I do with difficult scriptures that make me confused, that make me offended, that I don't get, that I don't understand? Because that's the bigger picture is how do you deal with scriptures like that? What are we supposed to do? Because when you read some of these things, don't get me wrong. I know when you get your cup, your cup of coffee in the morning... And it's one of those mornings where, like, the birds are chirping and singing, and it's fantastic. And you're like, I'm about to get into God's Word. And, mm, the Holy Spirit is moving this morning. And then you look down at your one-year Bible, and it's some, like, obscure passage. And you're like, I thought I was going to hear the voice of God, but I'm getting something that's just confusing. How do we deal with scriptures like that? What are we supposed to do if all scripture is God-breathed and useful? Because when you get to those times and you read a difficult scripture, something that's confusing, something that's offensive, questions start popping up in your mind. Am I right? Questions start popping up in your mind. Like, are the critics right? Is this, if this is confusing to me, are the critics right? Because a lot of people bring up a lot of these obscure laws about Leviticus and they say, well, your Bible says that you're not supposed to eat crawfish and you still do it. You're a hypocrite. I'm not going to listen to you. Your Bible says that you're not supposed to wear clothes of two different fabrics. So therefore, the rest of the Bible must be just as ridiculous as that law. So I'm not going to listen to what the Bible has to say about anything else. The critics, when we read that, are the critics right? Does that negate the rest of the Bible? Or do we look at stuff like that and say, okay, if I'm supposed to be consistent Am I supposed to not eat crawfish? Like, what is the deal? What I want to do today is I want us to wrestle with Scripture. Look at somebody next to you say, let's wrestle. See, I can't say that in youth group because they actually will start wrestling, okay? But today we're going to wrestle with Scripture. And I I just want to encourage you, if you've been to a church before where maybe you had questions or maybe you had doubts, and the, the answer you got to your questions and doubts was sit down and shut up, that is not the heart of God. God welcomes doubts. He welcomes doubts. He welcomes wrestling. How many of y'all know the people of God were given the name Israel? And the name Israel means the one who wrestles with God. All the people of the earth, the one he chose was the one that he said, they're going to wrestle with me. Because how many of y'all know if you're going to, we're watching the Olympics. How many of y'all know if you're going to wrestle somebody, you've got to be pretty close to them. 
So I would encourage you, don't jump over these scriptures that are difficult. You've got to wrestle with them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at three wrestling techniques, okay? Wrestling techniques for how we're supposed to wrestle with scripture. And we're going to specifically look at this question about can a Christian eat crawfish? Like I said, it's a lighthearted question, maybe. But I hope that today that we can look at these wrestling techniques and you could carry what we've done with this question of can a Christian eat crawfish and you could carry these wrestling techniques over to whatever difficult scripture it is that you're reading weeks, months, years into the future. Does that sound good? All right, so the wrestling technique number one, you got to get into position. You got to get into position. Uh, Again, y'all watching the Olympics right now, how many of y'all know, like when they're, the boom, 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 the bell rings, they're not just like, they get down like into the thing. I'm not a wrestler, but y'all know, they got to get their feet in just the right spot. They got to get their hands in the right spot. They got to get into position before they even start. And so for us as Christians, if we're going to wrestle with a difficult scripture, Our position of our heart, our position of our mind has got to be the position of submission. Submitting to the authority and really truly the authenticity of God's word. I don't know if you know this or not, but historians actually say that the New Testament is, well, Christian historians say it is the most trustworthy document that we have throughout all of history. If y'all, everybody in here believes Julius Caesar existed? Yes, everybody believes Julius Caesar? Okay. Our earliest document that proves, that, you know, testifies about Julius Caesar comes hundreds and hundreds of years after Julius Caesar's life. We only have about four or five copies of it. The life of Jesus, we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that are all echoing each other, that are all saying the same thing, And the earliest that we have it is within decades of Jesus' life. It is the most trustworthy historical document that we have. And it testifies to the truth and the authenticity of what God said and who God is. We've got to come to a place of submission that God's word is true, that God's word is perfect. And that means when we get to a difficult scripture, it's difficult not because of God, but because of us. When we get to that position, before we wrestle, we got to realize there's some reason why I'm not getting this. There's some reason why I'm not getting this. And I understand when I say the word submission, there's a 21st century America. I say the word submission in church, and there's some people this is going to come easier to. Some people, when I say submission to God's word, I just get an amen, you know. And then some people, I say the word submission and authority in the same sentence, and you're just like start squirming in your chair, you know, (laughs) I know I shouldn't have come today. Oh, my goodness. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. All that kind of stuff. I get it. I get it. But I think you could agree, and I think you could agree with the statement that I'm about to say. The longer and longer I have lived in this place that we call the real world, there's certain concepts and principles that you've got to submit to if you want to have a healthy life. Does everybody agree with that? You can't rebel against everything in life. Are you going to, something's going to break. You can't rebel against gravity. Jump, jump off the stage. Some of y'all going to break an ankle. Jump off the building, going to break even more. You can't rebel against gravity. If you've got an allergy and the doctor says, I'm sorry, you're allergic to peanuts. You can't be like, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm going to take a bath in peanuts. 
Good luck rebelling against that. The truth is we all have a certain condition, and that condition is humanity. We all suffer from it. Imperfection. And what that means is, is you can try all you want to rebel against the principles and the concepts and the truth of God's word. You can rebel against it all you want, but the longer and longer that I live in the real world, you can see that something's going to break. And something's going to give because God's word is perfect. It's the lamp to our feet. It's the light to our path. Submission, when we say submitting to God's word, it's not really truly just meaning blindly accepting everything. Like I said, just you get to a difficult scripture and you just hop right over it. Yeah, sure, whatever. Because you don't grow that way. That's not how you grow. Submission, when I say that, it doesn't mean blindly accepting everything. What it means is it means relationship. Look at somebody next to you say relationship. How does submission mean relationship? Submitting to the word of God means that you don't disregard the difficult parts of scripture. You don't disregard and throw them out wholesale if you don't like it or it makes you uncomfortable. How many of y'all in here are married? Throw your hand up. How many of y'all, keep your hand up if you're married, keep your hand up, okay. Keep your hand up if in all the years that you've been married, Your husband or wife has never once contradicted you. When in the world, you know? Okay. The truth is this. Is that if they contradict you, do you know what that's proof of? They are a person. You got that? About anything. And the reason that is, is because you are a person. And they are a person. And they, in marriage, it's the one time, the one relationship really truly here on earth where you can't hide anything. That's why marriage is powerful. That's why it's, okay, I've asked if they ever contradict you. Here's the next question. Is Can you say that today you are the exact same person that you were when the day you got married? Marriage is transformative. And it is powerful because you cannot hide who you are. If you're the kind of person that wakes up late every single day and you shirk the responsibilities and you're always running late, maybe you can hide that to some people, but you can't hide it from your spouse. And they're going to say, you know, you're a lazy bum. (laughs) And it may make you uncomfortable You may not like it, but you can't disregard it because tomorrow they're still going to be there. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) You can't go, nah, 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 I'm not listening. Some of y'all tried that before. (laughs) You can't. That's why marriage is so powerful. And it's a picture really, truly of what relationship with God is. Marriage is pointing us to the relationship the power and the intimacy that God wants to have in your life. Because how many of y'all know that, look, you can't hide the, anything from your spouse, but look, maybe you can hide certain thoughts or certain things in your heart, but you can't even hide that from God. So when you read a passage in Scripture that's confusing, that doesn't make sense, or even a passage that offends you, that gets right into that crook of your heart where you haven't, truly surrendered you haven't given that thing over you can't hide it from God and he's there saying look you've got to change this 
This is not what you were made for. I love you. And that's why submission is so incredibly important when we get to a difficult passage of Scripture. It's so incredibly important. So we've got to accept and submit to the authority of God's word. That's the first wrestling technique. The second thing is this, is you've got to examine your surroundings. In wrestling, okay, in the Olympics, it's just that nice, clean mat, okay? But in the ancient world, when they would wrestle, it would usually be like, you know, on a battlefield with rocks and all this stuff. And you didn't want to stumble. If you stumble one thing, boom, you're, done, you're dead, you're done. That's it. And so for us as well, you got to examine your surroundings. And by that, I mean you got to look at the context of that verse. you got to look at the context of that chapter. you got to look at the context of that book. Like, why is, why is this verse here? Why is this chapter here? Why is this book here? How does it fit into the whole story of God's redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation? Like, what is the context here? Look, how many of y'all know that context is important? Look, I got a little girl. She's the most beautiful little girl in the whole wide world. I tell her that all the time. She's just kind and sweet. No, you hear her name. And she loves puppies, okay? She absolutely loves puppies. Any size, big, small, if they're clean, if they're stinky, it doesn't matter. She just loves puppies, okay? If she's seen the puppy or even if she hasn't seen the puppy, we were in the car the other day and me and my wife were like, oh, no, you mean to see that puppy? Because we knew she would just love it. And she was like, oh, 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 I didn't see it. But if I did see it, it would have been cute. <laughs> like, she just loves puppies, okay? But one time we were visiting family on my side, and uh, this one family member had one of them little dogs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm getting those knowing laughs. The, the dogs that are more like cats than dogs, you know what I'm talking about? Y'all know you got to be a little more careful around the little dogs, not the big dogs. But anyway, so she had, uh, she, she was, got, like, she, all she sees is puppy. We're talking about context here. She was like, ah, ah, ah. She like wanted to go up to the puppy and pet it, but she didn't take in all the context clues of like, this puppy is growling at you. <laughs> this puppy's like backing up and like and growling, he's barking. And also the context clue of nobody else in the room wants to pet this devil dog, okay? <laughs> so, I got to teach her that lesson about context, especially when it comes to puppies. But the truth is, it's the same, I think, for all of us in reverse when we come to the difficult passages in Scripture. Of like, we're like, oh, it's difficult. This is dangerous. But the truth is, when we get to those difficult passages in Scripture, the deeper we dig, when we get into the context and we really truly see what God meant and the purpose for why it's there, instead of biting us, it's going to guide us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And so the truth is this, is if we look at Leviticus, again, let's look at the, at the context. Like I said, verse, uh, chapter, book, where is it in the whole redemptive story of, G, uh, of God in the whole Bible? But then also the historical context. Like what was going on in the world around that time? For instance, a lot of people look at the Bible and they say that, oh, I don't, I don't follow the Bible. It's outdated. The Bible condones slavery. So because of that, I'm not going to follow any of the rest of the Bible. But the truth is this, is that you got to, when we say the word slave in 21st century America, when we're talking about slavery, we're talking about one of the worst sins that the human race has ever committed in the transatlantic slave trade. Slavery by race, slavery for life, your children and their children and their children, one of the worst sins that humankind has ever committed. But in the ancient world, slavery, because they didn't have bankruptcy law, slavery was really the upward mobility of the ancient world. If you went bankrupt and you pay, you owed somebody a debt that you couldn't pay, 
You had to work. You were their slave for days, weeks, months, years until you paid it off. And the truth is it was a lot more, at least in the ancient world, in most places it was more like a, an employer-employee relationship to the point that there's tons of examples of Roman nobles, Roman government officials who would adopt their slave to be their son and leave their entire nobility estate to their slave. So when the Bible talks about slavery, it's talking about apples, while when we think slavery, we're talking about oranges. Historical context is important. And so when we look at the context of Leviticus, we have to understand and submit to God's authority and look at the context and realize we're coming to Leviticus with a 21st century American mindset. And that, I think the 21st century American mindset is we look at all these rules that seem arbitrary and useless to us, and we're Americans. And how many of y'all know that the stereotype of Americans everywhere else is that we're arrogant and we're whatever? So when we look at a law that seems pointless about two different kinds of fabric, we're like, well, that's dumb. I'm not going to follow that. I think the 21st century American philosophy could really be summed up the best by this really famous Scandinavian philosopher that most of your children actually know. Uh, her name is Princess Elsa. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's summed up really well in her uh, groundbreaking piece, Let It Go, where she says, it's time to see what I can do, test the limits, break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free when there are no rules on me. That's when I'm free. When I'm away from structure, when I'm away from rules and guidelines that I don't see the point of, I'm going to cast all that off and I'm free. Let it go. Okay, I'm not going to sing it. All right. But I will say that this is maybe for the past 10, 20 years, maybe 50 years, 100 years has been growing and growing and growing in popularity. There's some pushback, at least in the past 10 years, I would say, even not just in Christian circles, but in secular circles. The most uh, the number one podcaster in America for leadership and business is a uh, retired Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink. Maybe some of you guys have heard of him. I'm not recommending him or anything like that. I'm just saying he's very popular and influential. And he counters Princess Elsa by saying this. He's a retired Navy SEAL. He says, discipline equals freedom. I don't think Princess Elsa agrees with that, right? It's pretty much the exact opposite of what Princess Elsa says. And his argument is this. His argument is this. He says, yes, in the moment, if you cast off all rules and regulations, you'll be free in that moment. But the future you won't be free to do what you want to do. By that, he means if you want to have the freedom to be an all-star athlete, you can't throw off the restrictions about your diet. If you want to be an all-star athlete, you can't say, I'm free to eat all the Oreos I want. If you want to be an all-star athlete, you've got to restrict yourself and eat kale and spinach and baked chicken and all that stuff that none of us Louisianians want to eat, okay? 
But he said, if you want to have the freedom to be an all-star athlete or not be an all-star athlete, you've got to restrict yourself in your diet. You can't play eight hours of video games every day. If you want to have the freedom to be an all-star athlete, you've got to have the discipline, the rules, the routine, the regulations in place that instead of eight hours of video games, you're going to restrict yourself and you're going to have eight hours of practice and lifting weights and, and, and running and all that kind of stuff. You've got to have the discipline if you want to have that freedom. How many of y'all think that the Navy SEAL has a little bit better grip on reality than Princess Elsa? Anybody? Yeah. Surprise, surprise. So in the context, let's take this concept and take it to the, to the context of Leviticus. Remember, we're examining our surroundings. The book of Leviticus, let's look at the whole concept, context of the whole book. It is a collection of laws and regulations and rules. We didn't even scratch the surface with the four verses that we read at the beginning. There's rules not just about what you eat. There's rules about what you wear. There's rules about your haircut like we talk about. There's rules about how you would even enter into the temple or the temple gates to worship. There was rules about the sores that you would have and how you clean them and who you could be around. There were all kinds of rules in the book of Leviticus. Why in the world would God care about your haircut? Why in the world? That's what we think as 21st century Americans. When I don't have rules, that's when I'm free. Why would God care about what I eat and what I don't eat? Why would God care? Again, let's look at the context. The book of Leviticus is right after, does anybody know it? Shout it out if you know it. It's right after the book of Exodus, where God's people, the Israelites, had been slaves for 400 years. Generation. After generation, after generation, after generation, filled with hopelessness, filled with despair, never having any autonomy to be able to make their own decision, always having the slave master right behind them, driving them, beating them, telling them they're worthless, telling them they're nothing, telling them they don't know. For 400 years, over and over and over again, if you go one book before that, this was God's people that he said to Abraham, you This nation is going to be an all-star nation among the nations. Through this nation, I'm going to bless all the other nations of the world. The people of Israel are going to be an all-star nation among the nations. And instead, for 400 years, they have been slaves, beat down, bruised, brokenhearted. And so Leviticus is after they come out, God gives them all of these laws and all these regulations because he says... You're going to be an all-star nation among the nations. And that means you can't just go and do whatever you want to do. I've got a purpose for you, my people. You're not just going to go and do this or do that if you feel like doing this or you feel like doing that. You're going to be an all-star nation among the nations. And so that means if you want to have that freedom to be the all-star nation among the nations, you've got to submit to these restrictions. You've got to submit to these rules and these laws. In that context, we can look at it and see like, okay... About the haircut, he's saying you're not going to have the Egyptian slave haircut anymore because that's not who you are anymore. Whoa. That verse has got a little more power now, doesn't it? We look at the fact that in those days before refrigeration, how many of y'all have ever gone, not taken the crawfish out one day later? Oh, my goodness. Because shellfish is one of the quickest ruining, quickest rotting foods That there is on planet earth. And so God said, if you're going to be my all-star nation among the nations, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to keep you away from the things that are going to harm you. 
So now the verse about crawfish is like, oh, God doesn't want to just spoil my fun, right? God doesn't want the food to spoil that I'm about to eat. In the context of the whole story of God's redemptive story of his people, of freeing them from slavery, making them into an all-star nation among the nations, these laws start to make a little bit more sense. Am I right? And in the book of Leviticus, again, let's get even a little bit more context. In the book of Leviticus, there's all these laws, but they actually are broken down into three different types of laws. And there's civil, which is like, you know, the, the people of Israel for their government at that time. The ceremonial, which was the way that they were supposed to worship, but they were supposed to approach God in absolute purity. And then the last one was the moral law. This law, if it was wrong 6,000 years ago, 6,000 years from now, it's still going to be wrong. We can look at the rules about crawfish and be like, okay, we got refrigeration now. We can look at the laws about clothing and about haircuts and all that kind of stuff. But when we look at these rules about the moral law, because also in Leviticus 19, we've got Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The golden rule is found in Leviticus. You can't toss out Leviticus just because certain parts make you uncomfortable. We've got to realize the context. God was freeing his people from slavery, and he said, I'm not just going to free you from your environment. I'm going to free you from the entire mindset of being a slave. I'm going to develop you not just from a slave to free, but I'm going to develop you from slave to all-star nation among the nations, that you're going to shine a light amongst all the nations. Now we start to see a little bit more context about Leviticus and about all these laws. We got the civil, the ceremonial, and then the moral law. And really, truly, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's people wrestling with this perfect law that God has given them. Them striving for perfection, and yet time and time and time again, falling short. How many of y'all in Louisiana, you're like, okay, I get how they could be tempted by crawfish, okay? But the whole rest of the Old Testament is God's people wrestling with the law, striving for perfection, and yet time and time and time again falling short of God's perfect standard. Does that sound familiar? The book of Leviticus points us to this theme that is all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then God's timeless moral law that points to all of us. And not just says to the people of Israel thousands of years ago, but says to us sitting in this church today, if you want to be an all-star father, if you want to be an all-star mother, if you want to be an all-star friend, an all-star son, an all-star daughter, if you want to be shining amongst all the people that you walk through every day, you got to follow God's leading and God's guidance for your life. Now, the reason that we're released from these laws about Crawfish is really truly found in the context of our third wrestling technique. When you get to difficult scriptures, you've got to have a submission for God's authority, a realization that he really truly said it. The second thing is that you've got to look at the context all around it. How does this scripture fit in with the redemptive story? The whole story of Genesis to Revelation. And the last point is looking at the context of this, of keeping your eyes on the prize. And by that I mean worship in the difficult scripture. 
What does that mean to keep your eyes on the prize in a difficult scripture, in a scripture like Leviticus talking about crawfish? By that I mean look for Jesus in that scripture. Why do I say that? Jesus wasn't until Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? Look for Jesus in the scripture because he's there. I say, I call it the the Emmaus approach. On the road to Emmaus, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead, he appears to two of his disciples who were just broken hearted about his death, didn't know that he was raised. And look, go to this verse in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus appears to the two disciples. They don't even know that it's Jesus. And it says this, beginning with Moses, that means Genesis, the very first. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets from Genesis through Leviticus all the way up to all the Old Testament, it says he interpreted to them in all, look at somebody say all, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You can't open up one page of the Bible and Jesus isn't there to greet you. Even about crawfish? Yes, about crawfish. And look at what happens. He revealed it. And then at the end, when they realized it was Jesus, and they said, did not our hearts burn within us? When he talked to us on the road, and look at what it says, while he opened up the scriptures. If you've been reading through a difficult passage, if you've been reading through Leviticus, and it just feels like a locked door, you got to find Jesus in it, and the scripture will be opened to you. Yes, the context is important. Yes, you know, submitting and getting your heart ready before you get into it, that's important too. But it can't just be an intellectual endeavor. You got to see that in the middle of it, that God wants to speak to you. God wants to grow you. God wants to reveal himself to you through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, he's there. So why do we, what does this have to do with the law? What does it have to do with these old scriptures? Let's, again, we're diving into just this specific one. But Jesus said, in all these scriptures, they pointed to him. And in Matthew 5, 17, it's echoing something else that he said. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Another place he says, not one speck of ink will disappear from the law or the prophets until all is accomplished. But he says this, I've come not to abolish them to fulfill them. I've come because you can't fulfill the law. Me, you, you, every single one of us in here. The whole Bible is the story of God's people striving for perfection and falling short. Your story, my story is all about us trying for salvation, trying to be the best person that we can be, trying to be perfect, but falling short. If you've been in church before, you've heard the scripture that says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. We all come short to God's standard. But look at the context of what the Apostle Paul says right before that verse. He says this in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God, that right relationship with him, being good before God. Being holy before God, the only way you get there, it's been shown to us apart from the law. But why is the law there? In case y'all don't know, this this 
message is important to me because about 10 years ago, this was like a, a hang-up for me in my mind. I couldn't get past, like, why is the law there? Should we follow it? Should I, do I need to cancel my crawfish bowl? It was a real thing. Like, okay, I, I, I get Jesus. I understand it. Why is the law there? I don't get it. If, I'm, if I can't eat crawfish, I don't get it. He says this, the righteousness of God, that good standing, being saved, being back in relationship with God, it's shown apart from the law, but the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. They point to the way that you become right before God. It's not by you being perfect. It's not by you being perfect. They point to the one who was perfect, the righteousness of God. The way that you get right with God is not by being perfect, but by believing in Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, that is how we are made right with God. Not by living up to some perfect standard, not by saying I can do it, but by looking at Jesus and saying he did it for me. I love that. I love that. And the the truth is, even still, some of the disciples were wrestling with this question about the law and eating and all that kind of stuff. Paul, the the guy who wrote this, was this legal scholar, just amazing, brilliant mind. I absolutely love it. And so he has this amazing, logical, philosophical thing, and it's, it's beautiful. But then the apostle Peter, who was a fisherman, you know, was said that stuff Paul says is kind of difficult to get. And that's quoting Peter. God appears to Peter in a dream and literally gift wraps crawfish and all these foods. And he says, Peter, eat this. Because we're all different, right? Paul needed the logic. Peter needed, Peter, eat this. And he still didn't get it. God had to give him the dream three times. It's in the Bible. Okay. So then Peter's like, I think we can eat everything now. But the reason we could eat everything, the reason that the civil and the ceremonial law aren't held against us anymore is because Jesus, the one who came from the all-star nation of nations, that nation that was obsessed with perfection, among all the other nations, nobody was obsessed with perfection but the Jews. It was, I mean, it was almost like obsessive compulsive, the way they would wash before they would go into worship, the way that they would... They would strive for these standards. And over and over again, they would strive for perfection. They were obsessed with perfection. But all of them came short until the one came through this nation. In the first century, this community of Jews who for centuries and centuries, millennia, have been obsessed with perfection, saw this one man, Jesus, God's only son, And this community of Jews around him in the first century who were obsessed with perfection looked at the one and they said, Here it is. He's perfect. For millennia, none of us could do it. But this perfect, spotless son of God, the the holy lamb of God, is perfect. And he's done it. He's never sinned. He's never fallen short of the moral law. He's never fallen short of the civil law. He's never fallen short of the ceremonial law. He's the Jew of Jews. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And what happened was when he came to this earth... When he came to this earth, his righteousness shone forth throughout everybody. The nation that was the all-star nation among nations produced the holy son of God. And the Bible says when he lived his perfect life and he died the death on the cross, what happened was is he took the test of perfection for you and for me and he aced it.
He took the test of perfection for you and for me, and he aced it. But instead of him getting that passing grade, the Bible says that instead he chose to give us the blessing that his perfection deserved. And instead, he took the curse that all our failures deserve from the beginning of time to the end of time, the first human being to the last human being. He took upon himself on the cross the punishment for our sin and for our failures and for all all our shortcomings so that when we look at God's perfect law, we aren't crushed by it. Instead, we're led by it. We're guided by it. We're freed by the restrictions that God points to us and shows to us. But we're not crushed by it. Jesus was crushed by it so that we could have new life. We look at the life of Jesus. We look to the life of Jesus. We're still held to that moral law. It's timeless. But being a Christian is not looking at the law and saying, I can do it. It's looking at the perfect law of God and saying, I could never do that. But God, accept me anyways because what if Jesus has done? And this may sound like a paradox, but I cannot tell you enough how true it is. And I've seen it time and time and time again in my own life and in others' lives. When you say, I can do it, you just end up failing bigger and bigger. But when you come to God and you say, God, I can never do it, but accept me because what Jesus has done, more and more and more and more, you'll find yourself surprised by how much you are being transformed into the perfection of his image. So can, it, can a Christian eat crawfish? Yes, because Jesus didn't. Just add that to the list of all the sacrifices he made for us in Louisiana. But the bigger picture, like I said, it's a lighthearted question with bigger implications. Because he was condemned, that means we're forgiven. Because he was stricken down for all our failures, we're given new life. Because he was wounded, we are healed. Everybody, wherever you're at, bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I want to close up today just kind of giving everybody an opportunity to come to that place of submission and into relationship with Jesus if you've never done that before. Or maybe you need to recommit your life, recommit that commitment, recommit that submission to God. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe it, 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 you just need to recommit. And I just want to give everybody an opportunity. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, nobody's looking around. Nobody's trying to, uh, nobody's trying to embarrass you or anything like that. But I just want to give you an opportunity to let you know this is not between you and me. It's not between you and the person around you. This is, while it may have been me speaking this morning, God is the one that's speaking to you this morning. These are his words that I'm speaking to you today. When we go to the scripture, it's him speaking to you. Like I said, it's all about relationship he wants with you. And the beauty of this is you don't have to be perfect. You just have to ask for forgiveness and believe in Jesus. And he's there with open arms, ready to forgive you, ready to give you new life. So if that's you this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to submit to him and ask for forgiveness wherever you're at this morning everybody's head is bowed everybody's eyes closed if that's you this morning I just want you to raise your hand wherever you're at and we'll say a quick prayer if you're online this morning as well you can put that on the victory live where it says to raise your hand we just want to pray with you everybody in the room this morning let's pray with the ones who raised their hand 
And guys, this, this pray that, prayer that we're going to pray is, is not something magical. It's not the words that save you. It's your heart and your faith in Jesus. It's God who's already saved you. You're just accepting it. So let's pray this prayer all together, everybody. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for living the perfect life that I could never live. I admit that I'm a sinner. And I admit that I've fallen short. And God, I accept your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for me. And that you rose again to give me new life. So today I give you my life. And I take hold of the new life that you offer me through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Everybody say a good amen this morning. Amen. Put your hands together for all those who prayed that prayer this morning, everybody. If you prayed that prayer this morning, we are so proud of you. It's the best decision that you could ever truly make in your life. And I just ask one small thing of you this morning. We ask that you would text the word SAVED to 66599. And that's really just so that we can give you some next steps. We're not going to hound you. We're not going to come after you. We just want to give you some leading and some guidance for the next steps in your walk with Jesus. We love you guys. Thank you guys so much for being here. Hope you guys were blessed. And we'll see you guys next week for church again. Y'all be blessed.